Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Rob, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is being done in partnership with the Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care. And the title of the workshop is Diverse Populations Living with Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. And today's program is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo, and I would like to thank them for their support of the program today. Now, we have a lot of you on the call today, over 200 participants, and you come mostly from the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities, and we also have international participants from Canada, Greece, Kenya, Malawi, Mauritius, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it is a global call as well, and it's a credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grala. Dr. Grala is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grala will be addressing an overview of non-small cell lung cancer screening and treatment equity have never been more important for people living with lung cancer. Also communication with diverse population lung cancer patients and their loved ones about lung cancer treatment and what is precision medicine and how does precision medicine inform treatment options, and talking with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grala. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. Hello to everyone. <clears throat> I am Dr. Richard Grala. I'm a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I am so pleased to have uh, the ability to start off this program, and we will discuss many aspects of lung cancer uh, and uh, the impact on diverse populations. <clears throat> we are very fortunate and uh, to have a knowledgeable and very helpful panel on the call today, and I'll look forward to their presentations. I'll introduce the program and the problem of lung cancer as we see it today, and my colleagues will focus more on key issues of diversity and of uh, treatment in this uh, and diagnosis of this cancer. Of course, in that this program is being presented in June of 2023, all of us are grateful that COVID-19 has less of an impact on our daily lives. Nonetheless, patients at higher risk can still suffer from this infection. People with lung cancer are at higher risk, so to, it is important to maintain uh, a careful uh, posture. Um, this includes updating vaccine status for patients and for their caregivers and family. Also, it's important to have COVID home tests always available so that one can recognize that the earliest time if one does get COVID. Two and three years ago, we did not have these excellent vaccines, and now we also have effective home treatments that your physician can prescribe, such as Paxlovid, which can lessen the symptoms while reducing the risks of hospitalization and serious disease. Also, stay aware as newer booster vaccines for the latest variants will be available this fall. 
Well, just a few decades ago, lung cancer was seen as a malignancy that affected mainly men, and other than a smoking history and exposure to some toxins such as asbestos, few other factors were recognized to be of significance. Today, lung cancer occurs in just about the same number of women as men. Great changes in our understanding of lung cancer and of major illnesses in general has rapidly occurred. We know now that many genetic, lifestyle, gender, ethnic, and environmental factors have an impact on the risk of lung cancer, the type of lung cancer, preventive approaches, and even treatment of this very common and difficult malignancy. Major treatment advances are closely related to this enhanced understanding and will be discussed by our fine panel. It remains true that tobacco exposure, primarily first-hand smoking, is responsible for 80 to 90% of lung cancer. Smoking avoidance, that is prevention or, sm or cessation, is a key strategy. But since lung cancer is so common worldwide, even 10 to 20% of cases account for very large numbers of people. Dr. Shum will refer to a new term called precision medicine, which focuses on factors affecting a particular individual's lung cancer and may strongly guide treatment. You know, most medical treatments have been designed for the average person as a one-size-fits-all approach. This may be successful for some patients, but not for others. Precision medicine, sometimes known as personalized medicine, is a newer approach that tailors disease prevention and treatment. It takes into account differences in people's genes, their environments, and their lifestyles. The goal of precision medicine is to target the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. This has helped us find very specific and different treatments, and many of these also are even among non-smokers with lung cancer. In all aspects of medicine, lower income and educational levels have great impacts on health, access to medical care, and outcomes of this care. This is particularly true for heart disease, emphysema, and cancer. Thus, for equity of care and for improved health in all our populations, it's important to recognize where these risks are greatest and to attempt to overcome barriers to care. We've learned recently that screening in higher-risk individuals can save lives not just for breast cancer but for lung cancer as well. Something as simple as a painless annual low-dose rapid CT scan in smokers can save lives and allow for earlier and simpler treatment. Unfortunately, there's been kind of low usage of this effective screening tool among many people and with even lower uptake in many of our minority populations. When lung cancer is detected in early stages, it's highly curable, especially by surgery and even by radiation therapy in some people. Newer techniques in both surgery and radiation therapy have allowed for much easier treatment. The surgery is often able to be performed by using a scope rather than requiring a large incision. This is called VAT surgery. This surgical approach is available at all major medical centers and often has a very short recovery period for many patients. New radiotherapy techniques can greatly reduce the number of treatments needed for this modern method in the appropriate patient. Clear improvements in treating patients with more advanced lung cancer 
have dominated treatment thanks to a better understanding of how to treat different individuals. We now refer to treatment that affects the whole body as systemic treatment because it may use just pills and what are called molecular therapies guided by individual uh, genetically determined factors or new immune therapy or chemotherapy or immune therapy with chemotherapy. All of these are guided by individual factors and often by genetic analysis to the individual and can vary in diverse groups of patients as well as in individuals. Additionally, marked improvements in preventing side effects of all of these treatments have occurred, which can have a great effect on quality of life and making treatment more compatible for many patients and families. Even these quality of life approaches can differ by specific patient factors. Great challenges continue in making the best prevention, screening, and treatment methods easily accessible and available to all. As treatment has gotten more sophisticated and individualized, your treatment team, including your, your doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and social workers, can help make this easier and clearer for each patient and family. Your team can clearly outline how your own individual factors have helped to identify recommended treatment for you, and they'll welcome your questions. My colleagues will focus on some of the prominent areas that are important for women and men with lung cancer to be aware of with the great diversity of our populations and issues affecting barriers to care as well as personalized treatment strategies. I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner, and we'll look forward to the presentations of my colleagues. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grala. That was an outstanding presentation, and you really set the stage for the program today, identifying all the different areas that we'll be addressing during the program. So thank you so much, and I know there'll be questions for you always during the Q&A. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Elaine Shum, and Dr. Shum is Assistant Professor Hematology and Medical Oncology of Laura and Isaac Perlmutter Cancer Center, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Shum will be addressing the role of chemotherapy, radiation oncology, and targeted cancer therapies, new treatment approaches, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shum. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Um, I'll be giving an overview on the role of various modalities of treatment in lung cancer. Um, I'll be focusing primarily on non-small cell lung cancer treatments, and we'll talk a bit about managing side effects and symptoms of disease. Then we'll shift a bit to talk about telehealth, preparing for those visits, and how to utilize open notes. So to start out regarding treatment, I want to give a brief overview on the categories of systemic treatments that we have available. Chemotherapy has been used for decades in the treatment of cancer and remains a part of the treatment plans for many patients. It primarily works by affecting the way a cancer cell proliferates or grows, but these mechanisms for growth can also be seen in normal cells, which is why chemotherapy gets the bad reputation of having unpleasant side effects. That said, we have had many advancements and improvements in how we approach patients with these side effects and are much better at trying to control or prevent them from occurring. In just the last few years, the use of immunotherapy drugs have changed the way we approach many different cancers, and not just lung cancer. The way I like to explain how immunotherapy treats cancer is that it works to empower a patient's immune system. 
The immune system serves your body to recognize things that are foreign or not supposed to be in your body, such as a cold or other illness. In a similar fashion, one would think it should recognize that a cancer cell is foreign. However, we know that cancer cells can be smart and they have found a way to hide from one's immune system. By giving a patient immunotherapy, it could potentially unhide or unmask the cancer cell. So now your immune system can recognize it and try to rid it from your body. Lastly, as Dr. Gala mentioned, there are several targeted therapy drugs, some of which are oral pills that are available. Our understanding of lung cancer and the biology of it has expanded so much that we now have identified several different mutations that are associated with lung cancer development and have developed drugs to target these mutations. This is where we often refer to that concept of precision medicine that Dr. Grawl introduced as well. Precision medicine can sometimes be called personalized medicine, which is approaching treatment not in a one-size-fits-all approach, but tailoring treatment to a subgroup or even an individual's particular tumor characteristics. In lung cancer, this concept is particularly important and exciting given the identification of various molecular mutations that are associated with lung cancer. These mutations are more commonly seen in lung adenocarcinomas, and just to name some of the more common alterations that are known, there's EGFR, including various subtypes of EGFR, ALK, ROS1, RET fusions, BRAF, MET exon 14 skipping alterations, and many others. Recently, another molecular target called KRAS G12C mutations, have, which have been considered undruggable for years, we now have two drugs approved and many more that are in clinical trials. The choice of the initial treatment very much depends on the staging of one's lung cancer. Locally advanced or metastatic disease often requires systemic treatments. In the last few years, there have been many new advancements in the early stage setting regarding the use of different treatment modalities by stage, which really underlines uh, the importance of lung cancer screening, as Dr. Grala uh, mentioned before. For patients with early stage lung cancers, which includes stages two, three, and selected stage 1B, uh, that can undergo surgery, these are considered resectable. For a long time, the standard has been that they may receive chemotherapy before or after surgery. Now we have approvals for the use of immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy before surgery, which is called a neoadjuvant approach, or to use immunotherapy after chemotherapy in surgically resected lung cancer in what we call adjuvant therapy. In addition, targeted therapy is also now approved in the early stage setting to further decrease the risk of lung cancer after surgery or adjuvant therapy in EGFR-mutated patients with the drug osimertinib. There are a lot of ongoing studies as well that are exploring the adjuvant space for these targeted therapy for other driver mutations. With all these new treatment modalities, some patients may not require chemotherapy as their first-line treatment. This is where that concept of precision medicine comes in again as we use biomarkers or particular characteristics of a tumor to help us decide what treatments might be most effective to use. The, most, uh, the common biomarker that we should be testing for all non-small cell lung cancer patients is PDL1, as well as comprehensive testing for lung um, adenocarcinomas to look for those driver mutations that I previously mentioned. This testing can be done in various ways, but one of the more extensive ways is through next-generation sequencing of the tumor and also can sometimes be detected through the blood in something called a liquid biopsy. I will acknowledge that there can be barriers to this testing, although now uh, most insurance companies should cover for this type of testing, uh, particularly for metastatic lung adenocarcinomas. And I, I encourage um, all patients to always ask their physicians about this type of testing as well.
With all these new treatments and options, I also encourage patients to consider clinical trials, which Dr. Palos will also talk about more later. We would not have all these drug approvals if not for the patients who have enrolled on a clinical trial in the past. There are clinical trials available for many indications, and the goal for many is to improve on what we consider standard of care. I also want to underline the fact that, in particular, there are lower numbers of minority patients who enroll on clinical trials, and I do encourage increased minority representation to help advance our whole understanding of this disease and our treatments and potential side effects. Speaking of side effects, unfortunately, with all of these treatments, there can be side effects. But as I mentioned earlier, we've gotten much, much better in addressing and trying to prevent many of them. One of the most important aspects of managing the side effects is letting your care team know about them. I often encourage my patients to call with any side effect to allow us to help figure out the concern and then to help with the management. Many institutions often have a supportive oncology or palliative care team that can work with oncologists to aid patients with either side effects of their treatment or symptoms of their disease itself, whether it's pain, nausea, vomiting, decreased appetite, or even the psychosocial aspects of confronting their disease. I encourage patients to engage with this team if available, as a multidisciplinary approach has many benefits. Now I'll shift away to discuss telehealth, which has become more widespread since the pandemic, and will offer you some tips to help prepare for those visits. The most important thing is, particularly if it's a, going to be a video visit, is to check out your internet co connectivity the microphone, um, and also the clarity of the video. Um, before having any new consultation or a second opinion, having all the medical records sent over to the provider is really helpful. If a language other than English is needed, um, you should try to confirm beforehand if the visit can accommodate an interpreter uh, virtually. Um, in the clinic, you know, sometimes we have in-person interpreters, but also phone interpreters, so that'll be very helpful to um, know if it's available beforehand. Have a list of questions prepared in advance, and um, be sure to discuss and bring up any symptoms or side effects, as I talked about before. Um, because it's just video, um, the, the, uh, the provider can't do a full exam like in the office or, or lab work, um, and so we're dependent on what you're telling us um, during the visit. If it's a new consultation, um, always find out about other team members that might be involved in their care. Uh, who might not be on the video, such as a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, um, and also to find out the best way to reach them. Um, before the visit is over, find out when the next appointment will be, whether that's in person or virtually, and how to make that appointment, and of course, just how uh, to best contact the physician's office. Lastly, I'm just going to talk a little bit about open notes. Many of you may have noticed recently the ability to see your physician's notes in the electronic medical record. It's been a helpful resource, especially in the time of COVID, to potentially help fill in the gaps that might have resulted from not having as many caregivers present in the appointment, and so the plan of care may not have been clear. That said, it's important to remember that most of the time these notes were written from the health professional standpoint, and so there may be terminology in there that might not, may not be as clear from a layman's perspective. I think it's important to ask questions as needed. In addition, a big change that you might have noticed is the release of lab results and imaging results automatically to the patients once they've already come out. This can be a little bit challenging from the physician point of view, especially in regards to cancer care, because sometimes these results could be released to patients even before their primary oncologist saw the results. I always think it's important to discuss with your oncologist with the results before making any conclusions about what you read from those reports or to start Googling the results as well. 
can often lead one down a rabbit hole, and it's always best to speak one-on-one -on -one with your oncologist. Sometimes the electronic medical record does allow patients to indicate their preference for test result release, and so if preferred, it can sometimes be turned off so that you can hear the results directly from your provider. With that, I turn back the program back to Carolyn, and I look forward to your questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shum. That was really outstanding, and I'm sure there'll be lots of questions to you during the Q&A, and thank you so much. Um, and our, our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos, and Dr. Palos is former Clinical Protocol Administration Manager, Office of Cancer Survivorship, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. She's also author and researcher in healthcare disparities, caregiving, and survivorship. And Dr. Palos will be addressing outreach approaches for diverse patient populations, why treatment equity has never been more important for people living with lung cancer, concerns about safety of clinical trials for diverse populations, the meaning of informed consent in clinical trials, and key questions to discuss with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Palos. Dr. Messner, thank you for your introduction and the invitation to participate in this teleconference. It's an honor to work with the esteemed faculty and share this time with our callers. Dr. Grawl and Dr. Chum laid a solid foundation for today's discussion, and I'm going to review a few other points which may be helpful in the context of today's uh, teleconference. Now, all of us on this call understand that we live in a society rich with diversity. This diversity shapes the experience of one's life and their cancer experience. In any interaction between a patient and their care team, there are multiple perspectives, opinions, or what I usually call worldviews. The worldviews of a care team is usually built on a Western medicine model of care. Then there are the worldviews of the patients and their families, which can be quite, quite diverse and be based on religious, cultural, or personal uh, types of models of care. But what happens when diverse worldviews disconnect the patient and their care team? A disconnect occurs when the patient, um, the team, and the family do not understand each other's beliefs, values, practices, and preferences. How can one actively make decisions about their care, whether to participate in clinical trials or to even advocate for their care preferences? In the next few moments, I'm going to review the importance of accessing appropriate treatment tailoring outreach strategies, learning about clinical trials, and understanding the informed consent process, especially related to joining a clinical trial. As Dr. Gall and Dr. Chum stated, there has been an overall reduction in lung cancer incidence and mortality rates, yet certain groups still experience significant inequities in their care. For example, research studies indicate that black patients are less likely to receive a guideline concordant treatment for lung cancer than other racial groups, which is a major contributor to survival disparity. Other sources of disparities include barriers to biomarker testing and molecular profiling and limited participation in clinical trials for patients diagnosed with non-small cell cancer. We heard how important it is and about um, and how biomarker testing and molecular profiling are key components in improving care and the outcomes of patients. Fortunately, these disparities have been identified as a prior priority area for improvement to reduce disparities, and there are multiple, multiple um, community organizations, professional organizations, government agencies that are now all banding together to make 
um, equity councils or health disparities uh, committees to try to work together instead of everyone being in their own silo. So th this is really good news for all of our patients and their families. So one area that is really improvement is how to reach our patients, uh, how to reach um, you in living in different communities. As we heard, we have a global group right here. So how, how do we do and manage patient outreach? And it became critically important during the COVID uh, pandemic, as we heard. Patient outreach is critical to engaging patients. It keeps patients current in their care. It helps them to remember their appointments. It collects their feedback and encourages them also to participate in clinical trials. Patients have many distractions competing for their time and attention. So reaching them with this important information about their health and prompting them to take appropriate action is more complicated than ever. So one key factor is education. Education keeps patients informed and builds trust. So remember, it's important to have your education um, targeted or, or I want to say um, tailored to your learning needs and your preferences. So, and that can, so that's the way that we're going to have effective patient provider communication. So the most, whatever it is, uh, means is chosen. It can be electronic, it can be written, it can be face-to-face. -face. The most effective patient outreach program has to be reliable, consistent, specific to the patient, and in the preferred means of communication. Is it a preferred language? Is it written or, uh, or telephone message? Access to broadband services? Um, it's important to remember that not everyone is comfortable with electronic means. So some people Still, I have patients tell me, I hadn't gotten the reminder in the mail about my appointment. Well, we know that that is being used less and less now. So we need to inform our patients about that and, you know, negotiate with them or talk with them about what's the best way um, to get that information to you. And patients, if you are not being asked these types of questions, be sure and bring up the conversation. And the family members, I encourage you to do the same thing. In short, we have to keep our patients actively engaged in their care. We have to pr provide personalized communication. So again, an important reminder, and I'm saying this again to our healthcare professionals on this call, remember to ask your patients and families about their communication limitations as well as their preferences. And to our patients and caregivers, if you're not asked about these preferences, inform your healthcare team about what works best for you. So one of the most valuable benefits available in cancer care is the opportunity to participate in clinical trials that offer cu cutting-edge treatment options. Yet many patients are often unaware of the value or purpose of clinical trials. In addition, certain groups often are not asked by their healthcare team to participate in clinical trials. And sometimes patients and their families may have certain assumptions or fears about joining a clinical trial. Previous and current studies indicate that there is a marked difference in clinical trial participation according to race, with twice as much clinical trial participation among whites compared to patients who represent certain age groups, ethnic or racial groups. So adequate representations of patients reflective of those who experience this disease is, in clinical research is necessary to better understand the, the cancer biology in racial and ethnic minorities and other underserved populations. 
So again, we have to remember that the lower participation of these groups represent missed opportunities for ensuring that new therapies are adequately tested, that they establish a validated and to generate new hypotheses applicable to uh, broader populations. So effective communication about clinical trials and the research process has to be used to be built to build trust and engagement among diverse patient populations. Studies indicate that patients are willing to engage in research if they are invited to participate and given a chance to understand the research project process. As one patient uh, shared with me, the principal reason patients like me want to participate in clinical trials is to help other patients and their relatives with the cancer experience and hopefully to improve their outcomes. So much of today's regulatory and ethical framework for clinical research have developed from past abuses. And some of you may have heard of these. Some have been the, uh, like the Tuskegee studies that came about. Um, and other types of, of um, research abuses. But fortunately, uh, those are becoming less, and it, everyone is very carefully monitored from this. There's institutional review boards and other means of, of checks and balances of ensuring this. But from this history, modern clinical trials have arisen emphasizing informed patient consent and presenting patients with the options of being treated with experimental therapy. In the last few moments, I'm going to talk about the meaning of informed consent in clinical trials. The goals of increasing diversity in clinical, in clinical trial participation include earning and building trust. You keep hearing that again and again because it's important. Promoting fairness and generating, of course, biomedical knowledge. These goals ensure the safety of diverse populations participating in clinical trials. So let's take a moment to review the meaning of informed consent. It, informed consent is when patients are given important information about a medical procedure or treatment, genetic testing, or a clinical trial, including, and this is very key, the risks and the benefits. And it's not just for clinical trials, for your treatment options and other types of procedures that may come around. The information will help you as a patient and a family member decide whether to be treated, tested, or participate in a clinical trial. Patients can also be given new information that might affect their decision to continue or withdraw from a clinical study. The steps for making this decision is referred to as the consent process. It's critical for patients and their families to understand that the cancer experience depends on building effective communication forming trusting relationships with your team, and being an active participant in managing your cancer care. So don't be shy about asking questions. And keep asking questions until you are satisfied, even if it means repeating them to different team members. So now I'd like to focus a few moments on questions about the informed consent process in clinical trials. First, before your clinic visit, and I believe you heard our speakers address this before, inform the staff about any literacy, language preference, sight, or hearing loss, or any other special needs which can affect your communication with the staff. That way that you know that it's there and you won't have to be worried about it or try to be reactive during the clinical visit instead of proactive. Second, if a team member approaches you about joining a study, the first thing you need to ask is, do you have the time to really go over the study and answer any questions I may have? Because the last thing you want when trying to make a decision about a clinical trial is to feel rushed in signing a form or making a decision. 
The study should also have, the study team member should also have a copy of the informed consent to share with you and your family. And as a heads up, we're usually seeing electronic informed consents now, consent forms rather than written documents. And I'll address that in a moment. The document is a roadmap for critical information you must understand to maintain your safety in making an informed decision about participating in a clinical trial. Other vital questions to ask is, what is the trial protocol? So there should be a detailed plan of, of the treatment or the experiment, what it's going to do, how it's going to be done, who's going to do it, and why it's being done. Um, you can ask, is it a randomized study? And what does randomized mean? And how can it affect my treatment? And what, again, is the specific object or goal of this clinical trial? Will a new treatment be used, or will it be added to my current treatment plan? What are the side effects or toxicities associated with the study treatment? What are the costs, out-of-pocket costs to you or to me as the patient? What tests, procedures, or emergency visits will be or not covered by the clinical trial? And if not, how can I make sure my insurance will cover the cost? And if they don't, what else can we do? Ask about logistical details. How many visits? How often? And where's the location? And again, what are the significant risks and benefits of participating in this study? Again, to ask, a question to ask is, can you withdraw from the study anytime without any penalties or interruption of your treatment? And another question is, will interpreters be available for each visit? So one question that um, patient, that to ask, and, and I, I think this is really encouraging, although it may be a bit time consuming, is to ask, can you take the informed consent home to show it to your family and discuss it with them? This option is, is significant in cultural groups that believe in collectivism and shared decision-making. Or for patients who have limited resources for transportation to the clinic, child, act, uh, child care, access to pharmacies if medications are going to be required, or don't have the insurance coverage for procedures. You have to remember in some families, caregiver a caregiver is a caregiver team. So someone may be the trans the person who provides the transportation, someone else does the pharmacy visits, someone else um, comes to the clinic. So all of these things have to be planned if you want patients to participate and when you want patients to participate in clinical trials. Asking these types of questions really makes the patients and their families feel that you are really considerate about their particular situations and that means you really want them to participate in the trial. As we can, determine, can determine by now, the safest and best informed consent comes from a discussion with the um, investigator or a representative of the investigator, rather than a patient just reading the informed consent document. If any of you have had to do that by yourself, it is very overwhelming, because some are, are 10, 12 pages long. We all recognize that cancer does not affect all people equally. Disparities in cancer can affect uh, different groups based on their age, gender, income, disabilities, sexual orientation, race, and ethnicity. And it's also recognized that cancer outcomes are worse in people who experience these disparities. Our next speakers will address other areas of cancer care and the types of services available um, through agencies or programs such as cancer care. Thank you for your time. I will now hand the program back to you, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Paulus. That was an outstanding presentation. And oh, so many, many wonderful concepts, concepts that people will be asking you questions during the Q&A, as they always do. So um, stay tuned. Um, and our next speaker is 
is Ms. Diana Bairdon, and Ms. Bairdon is an oncology dietitian with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and Ms. Bairdon will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bairdon. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. Now, nutrition and hydration are essential. We all have to be um, hydrated well, and we all have to eat well in order to have our body function at its best. And so during cancer treatment, there are some side effects that can come along. We've kind of heard about a few of them today already. Um, some of these side effects might impact your nutrition. And so a dietitian is part of your healthcare team to help support you during your journey um, through your cancer treatment and beyond um, to help navigate some of these um, side effects that may arise. Not everybody experiences the same um, side effects, but um, in general, some of the potential side effects you could experience are things like dry mouth, maybe difficulty swallowing, um, maybe changes in taste, a decrease in appetite, maybe an increase in fatigue. So during your course of treatment, we've heard today already the importance of communicating with your healthcare team. Um, we are here for you. Um, so we have our whole intention of, of being on your healthcare team is to help support you with your needs. You need to be able to communicate those needs to us if it's not something that we're asking about, something that you feel is important that we haven't discussed. Please share those with us. Um, oftentimes we have a, you know, um, an intervention with a practitioner and it's very quick and um, you leave and you're like, oh man, I forgot to ask this, this, and this. So I encourage patients to come in with questions. As things come along um, over time between visits, take a note. Have some little notepad where you can take notes of things that are on your mind or something that comes up that you've experienced so you can ask the healthcare professional. Take the time during your visit to talk to your healthcare team. Um, know how to communicate with your healthcare team. Know the members of your healthcare team. Know how to get in touch with them. All of this should be access, accessible to you in the clinic and through your healthcare team. So don't hesitate to ask. Now, one of the biggest concerns when we talk about nutrition and hydration during cancer treatment, specifically with lung cancer, is we really want to focus on that you're getting enough calories and protein and hydration. Um, one of the things with lung cancer that can be a little challenging and something we have to keep our eye on and we need to know if something's happening and it's not so obvious to us in the visit, so please communicate it, is if you notice a change in your tolerance to diet, if you're eating less than normal, if you're becoming more fatigued during your mealtimes, if you're having a taste change or some other side effect that's not as it was before, you need to tell us. Every little thing is important. Don't think any detail isn't important or that there's, there's a stupid question that doesn't exist. One of the things that as a dietitian we focus on is monitoring patients' weight. Um, we do that because it's an objective piece of information that we can use to get an idea if you're getting enough nutrition in. Other things that we can do are physical assessments. We look for muscle wasting and fat wasting, changes in your physique, how cl your clothes are fitting. Those are important things for us to know. Sometimes weight loss isn't always the only way to tell. Sometimes there's fluid shifts, et cetera, that can mask the weight. So the appearance of the patient is a very important tool for us to use in order to assess how your nutrition needs are being met. 
If you're not getting enough nutrition in, then it's going to impact your quality of life. It's going to impact your energy. Things that you enjoy doing are going to maybe become a little bit more challenging. And your quality of life is very important, and that's part of your treatment plan. Quality of life is part of the goals we have is to maintain a good quality of life that we can for patients, the best that we can during their treatment. So again, communication is essential. There are medications to help with side effects. If you don't understand the medications, if the medication isn't working the way the doctor had um, explained it for you to work to help with the side effect, tell the healthcare team. Walk through, make sure you understand. I love um, having a family member or a friend or a support person with a patient because a second set of ears is incredible. That's one of the best things you can provide during a visit because so much information is being provided. Ask for things to be written. If you have challenges with vision, I have a lot of patients who um, you know, wear glasses, but still it becomes challenging with reading. Hey, can I get this in a different way? I need this to be in a form that I can understand and use every day, stick on my refrigerator. That's the responsibility of your healthcare team to provide. Ask them for it. Um, these are all the things that you know we've heard today already, but I'd just like to reinforce. Now, hydration is something we get a little bit kind of gets a little bit forgotten in the mix, and we talk so much about nutrition. But with dehydration, it can be very important because it can amplify some of the side effects that you're experiencing, such as nausea, fatigue, even make you feel dizzy and unsteady. Fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, things like water, milk, and sports drinks. A general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day, but different treatments may require additional hydration. Um, and so no, talking with your healthcare team about your unique needs is very important. So in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team. Please communicate with us. Know how to reach out to us. We're here for you. Um, on that, I'm going to hand that line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was excellent. Just a wonderful presentation. I know there'll be lots of questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Ann Fish-Stegall. And Ms. Stegall is Senior Vice President, Patient Services and Healthcare Delivery Longevity Foundation. And she's also a nurse. And she will be addressing Longevity Foundation's pre programs and services and also how to contact the Longevity Foundation. And I should say that um, Ms. Ann Fish Seagal is a, is, a, is a partner on today's program. Longevity Foundation is a partner. And Ms. Seagal is our speaker today representing Longevity Foundation. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Ann Fish Seagal. Thank you, Dr. Metzner. And we at Longevity are absolutely thrilled to partner with a wonderful partner like Cancer Care for this webinar series. And we're extremely grateful to our experts who uh, collaborate with us as partners as well and bring this excellent uh, programming to you. I'm happy to speak on behalf of Longevity today. We are a national lung cancer advocacy nonprofit. Our goal is to improve the lives of all persons who are touched by the diagnosis of lung cancer. We uh, strive to bring the best in resources and educational materials as well as um, events to our constituents. By going to our website at www.longevity.org, uh, you should be able to find um, 
links to many of the things that we offer. And sometimes we even uh, feel like we have so much on our website, it may be a little bit difficult to navigate. So we have people standing by um, during normal hours on the East Coast that you can reach out to by phone. And that phone number is also at the top of our um, homepage at longevity.org. We have virtual, what we call virtual meetups, which are really virtual support groups. We have multiple groups available to our patients and care partners, uh, depending on your mutational status, your overall diagnosis, whether you're a care partner, um, multiple opportunities to connect with other patients and care partners um, being affected by lung, by lung cancer. Um, these are moderated, some by um, long-term alumni, um, but every meetup has one of our staff members available during the, the Zoom meeting as well. We have a section on our website that we call our gateways, and our gateways are really um, condensed forms of education that can also lead you to other links. Uh, there are multiple gateways available, again, depending on your stage, your type of diagnosis, your mutational status, um, just a wealth of information there that you can explore. We have a patient and care partner resource center with lots of links to other nonprofits such as Cancer Care that can um, provide needs that perhaps we don't cover under our umbrella. We have two navigators that are available during normal working hours. We have an oncology nurse and an oncology social worker that can also help um, answer questions, uh, get materials to you, connect with your physician if need be, and also are available to then triage and send patients to other resources where they can get the help that they need. We provide mentors for newly diagnosed patients. We also provide mentors for patients that are considering clinical trials. So if clinical trials, as you've heard today, are a very important of lung cancer, part of our lung cancer treatment overall, and if you are considering a clinical trial and maybe you have questions or you just uh, have some um, anxiety around joining it and don't understand, we can connect you with someone who's a current participant in a clinical trial who can walk you through the process and let you know what that's like um, to, to be part of a clinical trial. The same with um, if you're newly diagnosed. We have lots of patients who have been undergoing treatment for various time points in their journey. They are happy to connect with our newly diagnosed patients and help you navigate that process and the education and resources that they know about that could also help you. We host a annual Survivor Summit each year that we call the HOPE Summit. We just had that in the Bethesda area back at the first weekend in May. Uh, we bring together the entire community of lung cancer patients and caregivers to celebrate each other, to learn from our key thought leaders, such as those who, who spoke today. We have fun events, and um, overall, it's a very uplifting weekend for anyone touched with lung cancer. We also host more webinars and Facebook Live series, such as you have joined in today, and we have very active social media pages. Again, those are 
by diagnosis or mutational status. So longevity really has so much to offer lung cancer patients and care partners, and we really do hope that you will explore our website or please give us a call when you see that number, and we are always happy to help. Thank you. I'll hand it back to Dr. Messer now. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Stegall. That was excellent, wonderful resource for everybody. And that phone number for all of you to know is 844-360-5684. And you'll be getting all the numbers and websites that we give out during the program and then some when you get the SurveyMonkey from um, us probably in a couple of days. So just to be, be aware of that. Okay, and our next speaker is Ms. Leanne Medina-Martinez. Ms. Leanne Martinez. Medina Martinez is an oncology social worker, and she is our disparities program coordinator, and also our um, and also our patient assistance coordinator. And Miss um, Medina Martinez will be addressing free programs and services for people living with non-small cell lung cancer from partnership between Longevity Foundation and Cancer Care, and we'll be giving out um, our helpline number for both longevity and cancer care and websites as well. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Medina Martinez. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Hi, everyone. My name is Leanne Medina Martinez, and like Dr. Messner shared, I am a patient assistance program manager at Cancer Care as well as one of our uh, workers with the disparities. Um, so today I will be sharing with you briefly about Cancer Care Services and our partnership with the Longevity Foundation. A little bit about Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling and support groups, education workshops, community programs, publications, and potential financial assistance. Uh, to become connected to any of our services, uh, Cancer Care has a national hopeline that you can call to speak to an oncology social worker. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to your diagnosis of non-small cell lung cancer. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as as well as obtain information. Cancer Care does offer support groups through various platforms. People diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer may experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment. When diagnosed and throughout the treatment, it may be helpful to discuss any financial concern with your medical providers. It may also be helpful to connect with a social worker, patient navigator, as well as the financial department at the treatment center to see if there are any financial options available to you. Cancer Care, in partnership with Longevity, provides limited financial assistance for those diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer. If you are interested in this financial assistance, you can reach us through the Lung Cancer Helpline at 844-360-5864 
or through the Cancer Care Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673. If you're interested in learning more about Cancer Care's support services and if you are also interested in learning more about what longevity has to offer, you can call either number and any weather answers will be able to assist. If you're interested in learning more about specific services um, from Cancer Care, you can reach out by going to our website, which is cancercare.org.org, or call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673 and speak to one of our oncology social workers. And just again, the phone number for the Lung Cancer Helpline is 844-360-5864, and you can also reach the website longevity.org. Thank you for your attention and your opportunity to speak on this informative program. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Medina Martinez. That was wonderful and a wonderful resources for all the participants on the call. And now we have time for questions. I'm going to ask Rob to explain to you how to cure up for questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Rob? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Um, so this is a question for Dr. Grawler. I've read that previous genomic studies of non-small cell lung cancer have not adequately represented black patients. Do you know of any more inclusive studies on the horizon? Well, there are. Uh, it, it, it's absolutely true that there are many different groups um, uh, that uh, are underrepresented, uh, but that. Um, uh, there are so many studies ongoing that each one of these contributes to our database. So there, there are many, many additional studies. But a big problem with many National Cancer Institute studies has been that only 2 to 4 percent of, uh, of the uh, uh, patients in, included have been uh, African Americans. And uh, this is uh, definitely a problem. and. Uh, uh, is an issue. However, if we look at the overall numbers with some of the major um, uh, uh, mutations that uh, Dr. Shum was referring to, there are still fairly large numbers of uh, African Americans um, uh, included, although the percentage is, is, star is, is still too low. Well, thank you so much. And um, Dr. Shum, are there any distinct differences in genetic abnormalities that could lead to non-small cell lung cancer between white non-small cell lung cancer patients and black non-small lung cancer patients? Yeah, um, so um, kind of continuing with Dr. Frawler was saying that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the data that we have is all just retrospective because, that unfortunately, there were not as many black Americans in many of the prospective uh, treatment studies. Um, you know, that said, um, it's also about access for some of this more advanced testing for the molecular markers as well. Um, so, um, you know, we, we, there is a lot of information about other ethnic groups as well, particularly Asians and Hispanics. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, again, we, we just want to encourage uh, more minority populations to, to be involved in some of these prospective trials um, that take all comers, but that as long as you're being represented, then you get counted. Thank you. And a um, question again for um, Dr. Shum. I've read that black, Asian, Latino, and indigenous Americans with lung cancers 
are 15% less likely to be diagnosed early? What are some steps in the medical, the medical community is taking to improve these uh, statistics? <clears throat> so I, I think that's a, an unfortunate statistic um, for sure, but, it, but it's certainly true. Um, I think echoing what a lot of people had mentioned on this panel is about patients advocating for themselves. Um, you know, there's a lot going on in terms of having the medical community be more inclusive um, of all patients, um, but it, you know, having a patient advocate for themselves also does go a long way. Um, it's um, uh, you know definitely connecting with social workers and you know making sure that there's follow-up. Um, so that if there's something suspicious, it, it gets followed up adequately, asking those questions, um, getting other family members involved, um, particularly if it becomes overwhelming. Um, but but it, it's definitely true that unfortunately we see this disparity um, with minority populations in their workup. This is becoming a major thrust in terms of trying to involve more people in clinical trials. Um, for Dr. Kuala, do you offer LCT to your patients? If so, what percentage go forward with this? LCT? LCT, I'm not sure what. Please uh, define what <clears throat> it hasn't been. It hasn't been defined. Just a question from a participant. Do you offer LCT? Maybe low dose CT? Maybe what? Sorry? Low dose CT? Oh, low dose CT. Okay, okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, these lower dose screening CT is um, offered at, at so many places these days, and it does need to be requested as part of the uh, of the radiology request, but it is offered at many places. And for patients who uh, have a smoking history and are of the proper age group, which is a very large age group now, uh, this is, uh, if there were no other abnormalities previously, this is a great screening tool. It's very quick and, and really decreases the amount of radiation exposure. So it's offered at, uh, at indeed my hospital, but most major hospitals uh, and many private radiology centers as well. No, thank you. And um, but thanks so much. And Dr. Shum, um, with non-small cell carcinoma lung and a rec recent PET scan shows activity in a node, uh, can Ketruda be effective? And again, if you could answer this in a general way, since this is an individual asking that question. They could go back to the healthcare team, but if you could say something about this in general. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it certainly depends on the overall staging. So, you know, lymph node status certainly helps us in determining staging, but, um, you know, if there's any other distant disease, um, if this uh, ends up being staged as a metastatic or stage four setting, and then um, most likely, and it, it is a uh, non-small cell lung cancer, most likely Keytruda is probably going to be part of the treatment regimen. Um, but as we talked about, the pdl one testing also can influence that as well as other patient factors such as other comorbidities, for example. But um, uh, the lymph node itself is not enough to, to tell us exactly what treatment is going to be needed. And uh, Dr. Kralik, could you comment a bit about um, 
about COVID and um, just in terms of just um, the context of what we're the world we're living in today and your your recommendations. Right. Well, uh, first of all, uh, again, uh, uh, COVID is not uh, seen as the same public health issue that it was uh, a year ago, two years ago, and three years ago, and this is great, but there's still quite a bit of it out there. And um, uh, it is particularly a problem for the same risk groups as before, and that is older people, 60 and above, 65 and above, uh, people with diabetes, people who uh, are carrying too much weight, and people with pulmonary disease, and people with cancer in general, and indeed lung cancer. So whereas it may not be the same problem exactly that it was uh, two and three years ago, it remains a problem. And so I think for those higher risk groups, which includes anyone with lung cancer, uh, making sure you're vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and keeping up your boosters is a really good idea. If you have had COVID, then waiting four, five, six months for the next uh, booster is also uh, important. Now, having a high-quality mask in big crowds is, is very reasonable for, uh, for those of us with, uh, with lung cancer. Now, it's also important that our caregivers, people we're really close to, are careful in this way. Um, the tests, the home tests, are really very easy, uh, although I must admit the instructions always uh, leave you scratching your head a little bit. But uh, it's really good to have them around. So if at any point you think that you might have symptoms that might be COVID, it is worthwhile to test. If it's negative, fine. You might want to repeat a test in a day. But if it's negative, okay, good. But if it's positive, even if you have minimal symptoms, if you're in a higher risk group, such as the age risk group or having uh, uh, lung cancer, then getting a, uh, calling your doctor right away and getting a drug like Paxlovid makes a lot of sense. Paxlovid is important because it takes away the symptoms very quickly and um, and it uh, uh, also reduces the risk of severe disease, which is terrific. There are drug interactions with Paxlovid, so you need to tell your doctor about all medicines that you're on, but it's only for five days. The rebound is not very common, but uh, it is uh, a useful drug, and uh, if you test positive, I think that anybody in this risk group should uh, take it right away. So vaccination, being careful in crowds, caregivers uh, being up to date in vaccination, uh, all make sense for people with lung cancer. Um, but it's still, um, you know, if we're cautious, uh, not the same risk that it was a few years ago. Well, thank you. And this will be the last question for Dr. Shum. What role does geography play in the onset of non-small cell lung cancer? I live near the Cross Bronx Expressway which is a expressway of lots of traffic, for example, and I'm worried this will have a long-term effect on my health. Yeah, it's a very interesting question, uh, particularly because there's been some recent information about the role of air pollution and its role in lung cancer development as well. We don't have the answers for it quite yet, I, I must be sad to say, but 
um, you know, there's definitely a lot of research going into, you know, what those environmental factors might have. Um, I, I think, again, it, it just takes a lot of vigilance um, on an individual basis um, to try to parse through particular risk factors uh, for lung cancer. So, um, you know, there's no definitive answer uh, yet, though. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to ask each of our speakers in the order that they presented to provide a takeaway for everybody before we conclude the program today. I'll start with Dr. Grala, Dr. Shum, Dr. Palos, Ms. Bearden, Ms. Fish Stegall, uh, Ms. Uh, Leanne Medina Martinez. So I'll start with Dr. Grala. Well, I, I guess my takeaway is that um, disparities are still an issue and uh, we need to pay very close attention and we need to make sure that all our populations are uh, well taken care of and this includes access to care. Uh, many of the disparities appear to be decreasing, which is, which is great, but there's still a long way to go. We need to take a, uh, pay attention and also to advocate to our friends and families about uh, the need to uh, be aware about health care and uh, for all groups. Well, thank you so much. And Dr. Shum? Yeah, I think a takeaway of, of what I discussed today was just about all the different treatments that are available for lung cancer and that it's not one size fits all whether you have a mutation or not. Um, and then just having a little bit of that information when you, you're going to see um, for a consultation, you know, just helps understand, um, you know, all the nuances about treatment and, and what is available. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Powers. I'd just like to uh, remind folks, yes, disparities um, still exist. However, if, if people get more involved in learning about the particular disease, the treatment options that are there, and participating in clinical trials, that will help close that gap. So I want to give two sources of, uh, that patients can, and caregivers can go to for information about clinical trials. This is something to be proactive about. If you want to know more about clinical trials, then you can go to clinicaltrials.gov, and it's a website that's um, give, uh, supported by the National Library of, of Medicine. You can go in, and it'll ask you certain questions about the type of disease. It's for all types of diseases, not just cancer. And then it'll ask about the treatment and all of that. So that is one thing you can do. So that's clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, I would highly recommend folks to uh, take a moment to go to that website. And then there's also another uh, thing called drug trials snapshots. Um, and you can just Google drug trial snapshot. And it provides the public with readouts of the demographic profile of clinical trial participants for approved drugs. So, it, you know, if you're wondering about a treatment and if it's been approved and who participated, you can go to drug trials snapshots. And um, that also then is, um, excuse me, it's sponsored by the FDA. So educate, 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 communicate, communicate, communicate. Those are very important things to remember when you're involved in this cancer journey. And thank you all for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Pops. And uh, Ms. Bearden? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd just like to reiterate the importance of, you know, 
each of us have a responsibility in, in your healthcare, including you being an advocate for your healthcare, you communicating issues and challenges that are coming up in your healthcare. If, if the healthcare team you're working with hasn't touched on an issue that you feel is important or is missing something that you're going through and you don't know if you should communicate it, communicate it. Um, take notes of things in between visits that are challenging or issues so you have those questions answered. And if possible, bring somebody with you to the visit. Um, every little bit helps as far as having somebody there to, to pick up on information for you to dialogue with and process what the visit was about. Um, and we're here for you. So know how to reach us and know how to you know, get in touch with us as soon. The sooner the better, the, po the better. The sooner the better. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say. Um, we're here for you and, and we want to help you um, through this journey. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, Ms. Ann Fish of Seagull. Yes. Um, you know, similar, you are not alone. And I think that's the biggest takeaway um, from everything you've heard today is between your healthcare team and resources such as longevity, cancer care, there are a lot of resources out there. Please feel free to explore um, our website call um, our helpline. We are available to help you to site or to help navigate any of the issues that, that you have. So you are not alone in this journey. We're, we are here to help you. Thank you so much. And Ms. Medina Martinez? Yeah, so just kind of to add on to that, so I would say that the takeaway is that, you know, a cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming in more ways than one, um, but it, you don't have to go at it alone. There are services available, whether it's emotional support, whether it's practical and financial support, um, it, whether it's resource navigation, uh, just educational workshops like this one. Um, just there are services out there, and if you need any assistance in locating those services um, or even getting assistance with getting emotional support or financial assistance, please reach out. Um, reach out to Cancer Care. You can reach us through our Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 and speak to one of our oncology social workers. Um, they can help navigate um, your call and help you provide either resources or provide, you know, whatever services we have available that you might be eligible for, as well as help you get connected with um, other programs such as the Longevity Foundation. Well, thank you so much. And um, I just want to thank our speakers. You've been incredible. And our participants have asked such really thoughtful and engaging questions that are really very much um, of our time. And to some extent, we do have, of course, we're making progress, but more progress needs to be made. And it takes um, a village, and it takes all of us working together in terms of um, creating, reducing the healthcare disparities the healthcare disparities gap. And indeed, we have a number of programs coming up on this topic. And so you'll be seeing more, more programs coming up on this topic. You will also be receiving a SurveyMonkey evaluation, which is an evaluation of the program today. But also, it will also include, and it will both come out next week, you'll get it. But it will also include all the resources that were mentioned today. So I know you're probably trying to write all the resources down. But you'll also be getting them all in the SurveyMonkey evaluation. Um, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I do want to reiterate the fact that you are not alone. Um, as uh, Anne Stiegel said, you're not alone. Um, we're all here to help you. And um, there's quite a lot of resources out there to help you. 
and we want to be sure you take advantage of them. They're all free. And they all actually have a great concern in making a difference in your life, in your treatment, in your family's response to this. So we want to be sure that you all get the help that you need. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.